Well, I'm going to tell a story that I've told before. And uh, actually, it is a sermon that I have preached before, but um, I figure it's worth doing again. Uh, so the story goes like this. Back when I was in seminary, uh, I was also working part-time for the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. And I worked for a unit called Emergency Operations, the Emergency Operations Bureau. Funny thing, the first time I told this story years ago, at the end of the service, a guy walked up to me and he says, I was the first captain of EOB. Uh, he retired in SQUIM, and so I would actually worked in the unit that he was the first captain of, Jack Bolin. Uh, the, the point of EOB was we did the uh, tactical and logistical planning for large-scale natural and man-made disasters and special events. So that means we did everything from uh, airliner crashes to earthquakes, big thing in LA, to the Tournament of Roses parade. That also fell under uh, our planning. Um, so to help us prepare, in particular for earthquakes, because that was a major part of what we did, uh, we would run these uh, big drills once or twice a year. And uh, our unit was not a very big unit, about 20 people in it, but we had these tractor trailer rigs. And they were set up to be mobile command posts. Uh, one of them was a bunkhouse to sleep guys in. Uh, one was even a mobile arsenal. And so if a big event happened, we could roll these rigs out to wherever the incident was and set up. Uh, so 1988, we had planned one of our usual major drills. It was called Quake 88. And uh, we had it set to start at about uh, 10 o'clock in the morning. Um, all of uh, LA County Emergency Services were going to be at the County EOC, the Emergency Operations Center, which was in downtown LA. And uh, our unit was stationed in La Mirada. That was where our office was. So all of our people were on their way down to the EOC to get ready for Quake 88. I was not part of that. I was a part-timer. I was in graduate school, so I was actually sitting in class. Uh, it was just after 8 o'clock in the morning, and a class was doing what class did, and all of a sudden, it felt like a train went by the building. Everything started shaking and rumbling. And it turns out that Quake 88 was not a drill. It actually was an earthquake that morning and a pretty good one. And I wasn't sure where it was, but I could tell from the shaking that somebody got hit, and I knew that would mean that our unit would be gearing up. So I just left class and started heading over there. Of course, with the earthquake, all the traffic lights were out, and if you want to see civilization come to a crashing halt, just try taking out all the traffic lights in Los Angeles sometime. So it took about 30 minutes to do what should have been a five-minute drive, I get over there, and of course, all of our people were heading to the EOC, right? So all this left was one sergeant and three work release ladies, that is, inmates that were doing work around the place. Uh, everything's blacked out, there's no power, and, uh, and it turns out that you know all those people that were going to that emergency exercise drill, well, they were all on the freeway when the earthquake happened. So everybody that was supposed to be running the incident was stuck in traffic on the freeway. And as it turned out, myself, the sergeant, and the three inmates were the only people that were in communication. And we had no power. So we sat an inmate at each of three desks next to a phone, just in case the phones did start working again. And we said, if a phone does ring, don't say anything. Just pick it up and hand it to one of us. We then pulled a radio truck up outside the office prop the door to the office open, prop the door to the truck open, turn the radio up loud, and we were the people who were in control of Los Angeles County during a major incident. 
The sergeant looks at me and he says, have you ever driven a big rig? Because if they tell us we have to roll, it's going to be you and me that have to drive the trucks. And I go, I've never driven a big rig. I will destroy something. And he says, it's OK. The city is in ruins anyway. It won't matter. <laughs> the thought that kept going through my mind that morning, sitting in the dark with the inmates waiting for the phone to ring was, if this is what it's like to be the people who are in control, what does it feel like to be out of control? Plan B. Plan B is what you do when plan A has fallen apart. Nobody likes playing by plan B. It's, it's always less efficient than plan A. It usually has a lot less thought put into it. Uh, it's never the thing of your dreams. In fact, plan B is usually what you go to after you've had a nightmare. The only reason that you even use plan B is because something has really gone wrong. And, and the mere fact that you have to mention plan B means that plan A, for some reason, has failed. The first time I preached this message, it was back in 1996. And, and when I preached it, right here on this platform, uh, I hadn't preached anything for probably a year and a half. I wasn't on staff at this church. Uh, I had been a pastor, but I wasn't when I came here. I, I was just a guy, like a lot of you, that showed up on a Sunday morning. Uh, you old-timers know the story, but there's a lot of new people, so let me do a quick recap for you. Uh, I felt God calling me to ministry while I was still in high school. Really did. It was it very distinct that, that God was calling me toward the pastorate. And, and when I finally said yes to that, I was excited to pursue that course. God also put this really pretty girl in my life. And coming out of high school, the pretty girl and I both went off to a four-year Bible school. And we finished Bible college. We got married. Uh, we then moved to Los Angeles. I did graduate school down there for three years to finish training for the ministry. And then we got hired by a church in the foothills of the Sierras to be their pastor of adult ministries, an associate pastor. And it was a wonderful church. It was a wonderful community. I've always said it was kind of a parallel universe to Squim. Sonora and Squim are very similar in so many ways. And uh, we loved that church, and they loved us. And I thought I'd probably spend the rest of my career there. It was definitely a plan A kind of beautiful thing that God was doing for us. But then I was faced with a situation that absolutely rocked my faith to its core. Forget about the Whittier quake of 88. This was Tim's quake of 1994. And try as I might, nothing I did seemed to be able to make the ground stop shaking under my feet. And my inner world crumbled. And finally, really in desperation, I made what was easily the hardest decision I've ever made in my life. I made the decision to resign the position that I loved and to step out of the ministry. Not because the church was being difficult, nothing like that. This was me hitting the wall inside. And so we came back to Squim. I came back here utterly broken in my soul. I, I would sit right over there, second row toward the end, and just kind of watch what was going on around me. 
And for the next 20 years, I was not Pastor Tim. I was Tim the medical equipment dealer, um, which is a bizarre story all of its own, believe me. Talk about the unexpected. Have you ever been utterly broken? Has life ever taken you down those unexpected paths that you never dreamed were going to be part of your story? Maybe a goal that you'd set suddenly became unattainable. Or it was a career path that got derailed. Or it was a person who had promised that they would always be there, and then they walked away. Or it was chronic pain or illness that changed everything. Someone you loved died. A bad decision had unalterable consequences. You know, the fact is, I, I've come to believe that nobody gets through life on plan A. That's part of living in a world that's been scarred by sin. The wheels keep coming off the wagon, and usually at the worst possible moments. There was a book written a number of years ago that was called Living Plan A in a Plan B World. And I would like to suggest a different title. How to Live with Plan B in a Plan B World. The character I want us to consider this morning is Moses. Because I think Moses could be the poster child for lives that have been interrupted by the unexpected, for people who find themselves lurched from plan A to plan B. Moses, his plan A started off well, in a rather rocky way. His, his birth, the fact he survived infancy was rather a miracle. At the time he was born, his people, the Israelites, were living as slaves in the land of Egypt. Remember, we talked about the story of Joseph and how Joseph actually saved his people by bringing them to Egypt. And they stayed there, and the years went by. And as the years went by, after Joseph died and other pharaohs came to power, suddenly the Israelites went from being visitors in the land to being slaves in the land. And so by the time Moses is born, Israel is living as slaves. But there were a lot of them. And there were more of them being born, and the pharaoh, concerned that the slave class might become too powerful to control, came up with a very cold-blooded but very efficient way to control their numbers. He decreed that all infant males of the Israelites were simply to be exterminated, put to death. Well, Moses' parents, with a newborn baby, took the bold step to hide Moses in a little boat basket they had made, and they hid out in the reeds along the river. And in God's sovereignty, it was an Egyptian princess who found the little baby out there in hiding, fell in love with that little one, and decided to adopt him as her own. The result was that Moses, the slave baby, grew up really as a young prince in Egypt. But Moses also knew who he was. He knew where he'd come from. And he knew that he wanted to do the right thing by his people. We don't have the details in the biblical account, but I have to believe that the young Moses, recognizing this unique position he'd been given, had grand dreams of what he might be able to do 
to free his people. How God might use someone of, of his training, his miraculous God-given position of power and authority, how he could improve the lives of his people because young men have big dreams. I think Moses had big dreams. He had a big plan A of how God might use him. Young men can also have hot tempers. And so it was that one day Moses saw an Egyptian overlord viciously beating an Israeli slave. Here's how the story is told in Exodus chapter 2. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together, and he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? And he answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Apparently he didn't look this way and that way well enough. Then Moses was afraid, and he thought, surely the thing is known. Word is going to get out about what I've done. And sure enough, when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. He had tolerated this young Hebrew growing up in his palace, but now it turns out that he's become dangerous. And Pharaoh, with the same efficiency that said he was going to kill the infant Moses, now says, now you die. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Suddenly, as a result of one passionate moment, Moses finds himself rejected by some of those he wanted to deliver and hunted by those who had given him power. And that final sentence there seems really poignant. He sat down by a well. His place of power and privilege were gone. He was now a displaced refugee, exhausted from running, sitting alone by a nameless well. But life goes on. Moses ended up making a home in his new land, but he was no longer a prince. He no longer had any position. People didn't bow to him when he passed by. He was just a shepherd. And I've wondered to myself, what did those first few weeks and months alone in the desert with the sheep, what did they feel like for Moses? I remember what it felt like for me sitting by my well, sitting over in the second row there near the end, thinking, what have I done and who am I and where am I going? Was Moses frightened? Was he angry? Confused? Depressed, maybe even despairing. What about his faith, his faith in God? I mean, where was God in all of this? God who seemingly had put him in this amazing position, given him this unique opportunity, and now it's all gone. Completely disoriented. A man who had grown up with power and luxury 
now living his life as an outcast. Well, in time, it appears Moses came to accept his new identity. He didn't perceive himself any longer as a member of the royal household. He was just a shepherd. He accepted the fact that he didn't have any great role in God's plan. He wasn't a leader, unless you would count a lot of dumb sheep as great followers. He wasn't a deliverer. About the only thing he could deliver was finding more grass for the sheep. But we find out from the story of Moses is that the plan B Moses had come to resign himself to wasn't the final stopping place that God had in mind. The plan A that he'd envisioned wasn't the plan A that God had planned, but neither was the plan B that Moses thought would be the defining end to his story. Moses never expected he'd be an outcast, but he also never expected to encounter God in a bush. And you know the story. Moses, he's out there herding sheep year after year. But this one day, he sees something unusual. He sees a bush that seemingly has just burst into flame all by itself out there in the desert. Except instead of becoming just a flashing pile of ash, this bush keeps on burning and keeps on burning. And Moses, with nothing else to do, decides to go over and check out the burning bush to see what this is. And when he gets there, he encounters the voice of God. And here's what God has to say to Moses. It says, The cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. Can you relate to Moses? Ever found yourself standing in his sandals? You look around, and, and all you see is sand and sheep. There is no future where you're at. And if the flaming thought that God might still have some use for you even crosses your mind, it, it is quickly extinguished by the simple phrase, well, who am I? How could God do anything with somebody like me? Let me share with you a scripture I've thought about a lot as I walked through my own Plan B season. It wasn't written until long after the days of Moses, but I'm sure he would have said a hearty amen. It was actually written by the Apostle Paul. It comes out of Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5. Paul says, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. Now, if you were to read the broader context that this statement falls in, you would find that Paul has just talked about how, because of God's forgiveness, we can rejoice in hope of what God has prepared for us in the future. 
that we will one day share in his glory. But then he goes on to say that we can not only rejoice in something as wonderful as that, the plan A future that God has prepared and planned, he says we can even rejoice in our sufferings, the plan B present that we often find ourselves living in. And the reason he gives is that suffering can produce a chain reaction, a chain reaction of three things. I'm going to paraphrase it and turn them into three H's. And the first H is hang on. That's not the actual biblical word that's used. The one that's used here is endurance, hanging on. But let me talk about one word that is a synonym to that, perseverance, and another word that oftentimes creeps up in the moments that we are called to persevere, and that is doubt. Perseverance, I am convinced, is one of the less popular Christian virtues. It means struggling against the current and a long struggle at that. And we don't like struggle. We don't like prolonged pain. And sometimes prolonged struggles lead to doubt. We wonder if we've really missed it in terms of our walk with God when we find ourselves suffering. I mean, how does prolonged struggle, how does that sync up with this idea of the victorious Christian life? Isn't that supposed to be a happy thing? Doesn't that mean you're on top of the situation? As we struggle with that, we can begin to doubt God himself. This is not going the way I thought, and I thought the way it was going was proof that God was with me. So if I'm still struggling, where is God? Is there even a God there? You know, one of the job hazards of being a pastor is that you not only live with your own plan Bs, your own suffering, uh, you tend to share in a lot of other people's as well. As a young pastor, I found myself asking lots of why questions. In fact, that's what eventually led me into my own crisis. It wasn't so much my own struggle, it was watching other people's struggles. And struggling to understand if this or that was really the way it was supposed to be. Is this how the story goes? And I finally sat down with my Bible and decided to look at it from the perspective of what the normal life with God should look like. Now, I'll admit that reading the Bible is often like watching an NFL highlights reel. You know how those are. You, you watch in about three minutes a game that took about four hours to play. And, and what you see in those three minutes is a slow motion replay of the best of the best, one right after another. What you miss is all of the hard fought ground in between those big plays where a yard was gained and a yard was lost, and that bruising, crushing battle that finally created the field position that allowed those best of the best plays to happen. When I took a look at scripture through a little different lens, I discovered that I'd been the victim of some false advertising. Not God's, but mine and my culture's, specifically images that is often portrayed by much of popular Christianity. I think we too often have tried to smuggle the American dream into the gospel. 
We have portrayed following Jesus as simply a better, faster way to the good life, to achieving our plan A's. We preach the gospel that says that those who serve God faithfully are guaranteed success in business and marriage and child rearing. You just have to follow the formula and you win. You know, the Bible never said that. Jesus certainly never said that. In fact, here's what Jesus had to say, John chapter 16. In this world, you will have trouble. I kind of wish he hadn't said that. <laughs> or John 17. He's praying. He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. I kind of wish he'd asked that. But that you keep them from the evil one. Not from every evil thing. Not from plan B. He just asked that, that our souls would be preserved. But he promises us that we're going to run into hard times. When you look at the kinds of experiences that God's people live through, you realize that they, in fact, did often lead difficult lives. And we may read the highlights of their best moment, their greatest achievement, but when you look at the story underlying it, you realize they went through a lot of difficult times. And the message that was given again and again was, hang on persevere, hold on, don't give up. In fact, Hebrews chapter 11, that great chapter of faith that we looked at a number of weeks ago, here's what it says about Moses. It says, by faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God, he endured as seeing him who is invisible. He endured I love this little cartoon, the frog and the heron. <laughs> Never give up. Hold on. Persevere. Galatians 6, 9, the Apostle Paul says, Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Or Psalm 27, 14, a passage that Burnett and I looked at often and prayed through often in some of those dark days. It says this, wait for the Lord, be strong, and take heart and wait for the Lord. That's my first bit of advice for living with plan B. Hang on. Wait for the Lord. If we hang on, then Paul says back in Romans that there will be produced in us character. People who have learned to hang on in the face of the storm grow stronger. Character encompasses a lot, but let me point out one aspect of character that has come to seem supremely important to me when we're faced with plan B. And that is the trait of humility. Think about humility in the life of Moses. You know, suffering can make you humble. It can just as easily make you hard. When Moses found himself out there alone in the desert, 
he could have become hard. It was a hard life. He could have gotten angry at God. I don't know, maybe he did. When God called out of that burning bush, Moses could have turned and stormed away. He could have said, who are you to show up now after letting me go through all of this and ask me to do something for you? There was some reason why God had to leave him out there in the desert for 40 years. Maybe it was so that Moses could finish raging against the sand. Maybe it was to toughen up a kid who had grown up with a silver spoon. Maybe it was to transform Moses from a man who was full of himself into a man who could wait on God. But what we find at the end of the desert experience is not a hard and bitter man, but it's a humble and usable one. Really an insecure one in many ways. Who am I that you could use me? In those 40 years in the wilderness, they are a good reminder to me that God is a God of time and process. I want answers, and I want them now. I want solutions. I spent 20 years in business. If there's a problem, fix it. If you can do it today, do it today. That's how I want life to go. And yet God often moves in the long process. He takes his time. God allows us to walk through experiences and learn and grow deeply and slowly because he doesn't just want to fix the issue. He wants to grow the soul. You think about Job and his process. If ever there was a guy who was forced to live plan B, it had to be Job, right? We often speak of his patience, but when you really read his story, you find that Job got angry at God about plan B. Job's story does not read like that of a saint who always got it right in the midst of his trial. Look at this from Job chapter 9. This is Job talking. It says, How then can I dispute with him, with God? How can I find words to argue with him, even if I summoned him? And he responded, I do not believe he would give me a hearing. He would crush me with a storm and multiply my wounds for no reason. If it is not he, then who is it? Does that sound to you like a man who is at peace with his circumstances? Who's at peace and trusting God in the midst of the storm? He says, even if I could get God here and, and tell him to answer me, because I don't think God would answer me. I think he'd just make it worse. He'd just crush me. And God didn't say a thing. He waited. Silently. In fact, his answer doesn't come until chapter 38. This is chapter 9. That's a long ways away. The answer was startling. God does not answer a single one of Job's questions or challenges. Instead, he demands some answers from Job. The point of the interrogation is this. It's, Job, can you accept that I'm God, and sometimes there are things that I know that you don't. God spends about four chapters saying that to Job. And Job's response is very different than his opening challenge. 
I've uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. And in the end, God does some things in Job's life that Job never anticipated would come out of plan B. Or how about the process of the Apostle Paul? Take this from 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Of course, Paul had an amazing story, right? The road to Damascus and turned around and made this great apostle. And then he says, to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. We don't know exactly what it was. But there was something in Paul's life that was a constant problem. It, it got in his way. It hurt him. It seemed to impede him. And he says, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. I pleaded. Lord, what, what purpose could this have in my life? You've given me a call. You've given me a mission. This is getting in the way, this pain, this torment. Please take it away. God says, my power is going to be shown in your weakness. And he says, that is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You know, I don't know if I can honestly say yet that I delight in my weakness. But you know, I don't feel the need to hide it anymore. When I used to sit over there, I didn't want to tell anybody my story. It just hurt too much. It was too embarrassing. It felt shameful. I didn't know the answers myself. I certainly would not have stood up here on a Sunday morning and talked to all of you about it. But as time has gone on, I have found that God has turned my failure into a story of grace. Not because of my strength, not because I'm impressive, but because he is gracious. I'm pretty convinced. I, I talk about my story every now and you may go, why is that? Well, it's because I want you to know that what you need in, in leaders is you don't need supermen. We, we too easily want to take people and make them the heroes. The hero is Jesus Christ. It's his grace that is heroic. We're all just weak, broken vessels. And I'm as weak or weaker than any one of you. And it's God's grace that we depend on day to day. And humility is absolutely essential if you're going to grow through suffering. Without it, we will thrash and kick and despair and hate and become bitter. And in the process, we will only hurt ourselves and others all the more. It's when we can finally, in humility, say, God, I don't understand, but I trust you still. Amen. And something happens when God develops that character within us. Paul says that it leads to hope. Maybe the best illustration I can give of this is what I saw in my mom when she came to visit us in California right at the outset of my plan A falling apart. Mom had planned for several months to come and visit us, to spend a week with our family. And uh, it was shortly before she came, though, that my internal world crumbled, something I was not anticipating. Neither was she. This was not the plan A trip 
that mom had planned. She showed up at what was perhaps one of the lowest points for me in that experience. I know it wasn't the trip she planned, but it was certainly the help that God had arranged. Mom showed up and she prayed with us. She supported us. She talked. She listened. And in the middle of all that, I told her that I had reached such a low point that I was honestly doubting if God was even there. And I said, doesn't that bother you? I mean, to hear your son, who, you know, all about being a pastor, now telling you he's not even sure God is there. And her answer was simple. She said, Tim, I've lived a little bit longer than you, and I've seen God's faithfulness for so long and in so many situations that no matter what happens, I could never doubt him. You know, I'd watched my mom's life, and I knew that was true. There were dreams my mom had that I knew had been dashed. But I'd also seen how God had redeemed those losses. And he'd let my mom become this source of encouragement to so many others in ways that she never would have been able to if she hadn't experienced the crushing of some of those dreams. And so there it is. A person who had hung on, who had persevered, who had learned to stay humble, had seen God work, and had become a person of hope. And isn't that really what faith is all about? Hebrews 11. Faith is being sure of what we hope for, certain of what we do not see. I would say if you're in a place where you have lost your hope, I would encourage you to look for an older saint who has learned this lesson and get close to them and let them share some hope with you. They've got a better perspective. I love what Moses' story turns into. This guy who seemed to have the world by the tail, who was perfectly positioned to do great things for God, and then totally blows it a self-induced implosion, and loses everything. And yet in the process, God empties Moses of his pride, and he molds a man that he can truly use. And when the time was right, God used Moses in ways that Moses had come to think were impossible. Like I said, the first time I preached this sermon was in 1996. A lot has happened since then. But as the years have passed, I have seen how God has raised good things, beautiful things, even out of the ashes. I know some of your stories, not all of them. But I don't know where your heart is at right now. Maybe like Moses, you have done something that has made a mess. Sometimes the first step is admitting that the mess I'm in is the mess I made. Maybe someone else has made the mess for you. Maybe you feel like Moses, out there, alone, in the desert, sitting by a well. You, you are just worn out. There is no more trail in front of you as far as you know, and you're just sitting by the well. Maybe you've embarrassed yourself. That's not necessarily a bad thing. 
Remember that character trait I said God likes to develop us? It's humility. In fact, it may be the very thing that God will finally allow God to really use you. Let me go back to those words again from Psalm 27, 14. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. Hang on. Stay humble. Have hope. Amen?